from the book Historical Collections and Accounts of Revivals, commencing with the Journal of John Wesley. From the time that she was made leader to one or two bands, she was more eminently a pattern to the flock, in self-denial of every kind, in openness of behavior, in simplicity, in godly sincerity, in steadfast faith, in constant attendance on all the public and all the private ordinances of God. And as she had labored more than they all, so God now called her forth to suffer. She was seized at first with a violent fever, in the, in the beginning of which they removed her to another house. Here she had work to do which she knew not of. The master of the house was one who cared for none of these things, but he observed her and was convinced, so that he then began to understand and laid a heart to things that bring a man peace at the last. In a few days the fever abated or settled, as it seemed into an inward imposthume, so that she could not breathe without violent pain which increased day and night. When I came in, she stretched out her hand and said, Art thou come? Praised be the name of my Lord for this. I asked, Do you faint now you are chastened of him? She said, Oh, no, no, no. I faint not, I murmur not, I rejoice evermore. I said, God will make all your bed in your sickness. She cried out, He does, He does. I have nothing to desire. He is ever with me, and I have nothing to do but to praise him. In the same state of mind, though weaker in body, she continued till Tuesday following. When several of those who had been in her band, being present, she fixed her eyes upon them and prayed that God would keep them from the evil one. In the afternoon when I came, all her words were prayer and praise. The same spirit she breathed when Mr. Maxfield called the next day, and soon she slept in peace. 1742 Wednesday January 27th. I buried the body of Sarah Wiskin, a young woman late of Cambridge, a short account of whom a part of it follows in the words of one that was with her. Quote, the first time she went intending to Mr. was January 3rd, but he was then ill. She went again Tuesday the 5th. From that time she seemed quite taken up with the things above, and could willingly have been always hearing her praying or singing hymns. Wednesday the 13th. She was sent for into the country, at which news she cried violently, being afraid to go, lest she should again be conformable to the world. With tears in her eyes she asked me, What shall I do? I am in a great strait. And being advised to commit her cause to God, and pray that His will might be done, not her own, she said, she would defer her journey three days to wait upon God, that He might show His will concerning her. The next day she was taken ill of a fever, but being something better on Friday, she sent and took a place in Cambridge coach for the Tuesday following. Sunday, the 17th, she was ill again and desired me to write a note that she might be prayed for. I asked what I should write. She answered, You know what I want, a lively faith. But being better on Monday, the 18th, she got up to prepare for her journey, though still desiring God to put a stop to it if it was not according to His will. As soon as she rose from prayer, she fainted away. From this hour, she was almost continually praying to God that He would reveal Himself to her soul. On Tuesday the 19th, being in tears, she was asked, What was the matter? She answered, The devil is very busy with me. One asking, Who condemns you? She pointed to her heart and said, This, and God is greater than my heart. 
On Thursday, after Mr. Richards had prayed with her, she was more cheerful and said she could not doubt, but God would fulfill the desire which he had given her. Friday the 22nd, one of her sisters coming out of the country to see her, she said, If I had come to see you, perhaps evil would have befallen me, but I am snatched out of the hands of the devil. Though God has not yet revealed himself unto me, yet I believe, were I to die this night before tomorrow, I should go to heaven." Her sister saying, I hope God will restore you to health, she replied. Let him do what seemeth him good. Saturday the 23rd, she said, I saw my mother and brother and sister in my sleep, and they all received a blessing. I asked if she thought that she would die, and whether she believed the Lord would receive her soul. Looking very earnestly, she said, I have not seen the Lord yet, but I believe I shall see him and live. Although these are bold words for a sinner to say, are they not? Sunday the 24th I asked her, How have you rested? She answered, Very well. Though I have had no sleep, and I wanted none, for I have had the Lord with me. Oh, let us not be ashamed of Him, but proclaim Him upon the housetop. And I know whatever I ask in the name of Jesus according to His will I shall have. Soon after, she called hastily to me and said, I fear I have deceived myself. I thought the amen was sealed in my heart, but I fear it is not. Go down and pray for me and let him not go until he has given my heart's desire. Soon after, she broke out into singing and said, I was soon delivered of my fears. I was only afraid of a flattering hope. But if it had been so, I would not have let him go. Her sister that was come to see her was much upon her mind. You, said she, are in pain for her, but I have faith for this little child. God has a favor unto her. In the afternoon she desired me to write a bill for her. I asked, What shall I write? She said, Return thanks to God for what He has done for me, and pray that He would manifest Himself to my relations also. Go to the preaching. Leave but one with me. Soon after we were gone, she arose up, called to the person that was with her, and said, Now it is done. I am assured my sins are forgiven. The person answering, Death is a little thing to them that die in the Lord. She replied with vehemence, A little thing, it is nothing. The person then desiring she would pray for her, she answered, I do. I pray for all. I pray for all I know, and for them I do not know. And the Lord will hear the prayer of faith. At our return, her sister kneeling by the bedside, she said, Are you not comforted, my dear, for me? Her speech then, failing, she made signs for her to be by her, and kissed her and smiled upon her. She then lay about an hour without speaking or stirring, until about three o'clock on Monday morning she cried out, My Lord and my God, fetched a double sigh, and died. Saturday, February 20th. I preached at Weaver's Hall. It was a glorious time. Several dropped to the ground as if struck by lightning. Some cried out in bitterness of soul. I knew not where to end, being constrained to begin anew again and again. In this acceptable time we begged of God to restore our brethren who were departed from us for a season, and to teach us all to follow after the things that make for peace, and the things whereby one may edify another. Sunday the 21st. In the evening I explained the exceeding great and precious promises which are given us, a strong confirmation whereof I read in a plain, artless account of a child whose body then lay before us. The substance of this, a part of it, was as follows, quote, John Woolley was for some time in your school, but was turned out for his ill behavior. 
Soon after he ran away from his parents, lurking about for several days and nights together, and hiding himself in holes and corners that his mother might not find him. During this time he suffered both hunger and cold. Once he was three whole days without sustenance, sometimes weeping and praying by myself, and sometimes playing with other loose boys. One night he came to the new room. Mr. was then speaking of disobedience to parents. He was quite confounded and thought there never was in the world so wicked child as himself. He went home and never ran away any more. His mother saw the change in his whole behavior, but knew not the cause. He would often get upstairs by himself to prayer and often go alone into the fields, having done with all his idle companions. And now the devil began to set upon him with all his might, continually tempting him to self-murder. Sometimes he was vehemently pressed to hang himself sometimes to leap into the river. But this only made him the more earnest in prayer, in which after he had been one day wrestling with God, he was so filled with joy and love of God that he scarce knew where he was, and with such love to all mankind that he could have laid himself on the ground for his worst enemies to trample upon. From this time his father and mother were surprised at him. He was so diligent to help them in all things. When they went to the preaching, he was careful to give their supper to the other children. And when he had put them to bed, hurried away to the room to light his father or mother home. Meantime, he lost no opportunity of hearing the preaching himself, or of doing any good he could, either at home or in any place where he was. One day, walking in the fields, he fell into talk with a farmer who spoke very slightly of religion. John told him he ought not to talk so, and enlarged upon that word of the apostle, which he begged him to consider deeply, without holiness no man shall see the Lord. The man was amazed, caught the child in his arms, and knew not how to part with him. His father and mother, once hearing him speak pretty loud in the next room, listened to hear what he had said. He was praying thus, Lord, I do not expect to be heard for my much speaking. Thou knowest the secrets of my heart. Thou knowest all my wants. He then descended to particulars. Afterwards he prayed very earnestly for his parents and for his brothers and sisters by name, then for Mr. John and Charles Wesley, then for all the other ministers he could remember by name, and for all that were or desired to be true ministers of Christ. In the beginning of his illness, his mother asked him if he wanted anything. He answered, Nothing but Christ, and I am as sure of Him as if I had Him already. He said, O mother, if all the world believed in Christ, what a happy world would it be, and they may. I was the worst of sinners, and he died for me. On Wednesday he said to his mother, I am in very great trouble for my father. He has always taken an honest care of his family, but he does not know God. If he dies in the state he is in now, he cannot be saved. If God should give him the true faith, and then take him to himself, do not you fear, do not you be troubled. God has promised to be a father to the fatherless, and a husband to the widow. And I hope we shall sing hallelujahs in heaven together. To his eldest sister he said, Do not puff yourself up with pride. When you receive your wages, which is not much, lay it out in plain necessaries. And if you are inclined to be married, do not sing songs. Do you sing psalms and hymns? Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. When you are at work, you may lift up your heart to God and be sure never to rise to go or go to bed without asking His blessing. He added, I shall die, but do not cry for me. Why should you cry for me? Consider what a joyful thing it is to have a brother go to heaven. I am not a man, I am but a boy. 
But is it not in the Bible, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength? I know where I am going. I would not be without this knowledge for a thousand worlds. For though I am not in heaven yet, I am as sure of it as if I was. He said to his mother, That school was the saving of my soul, for there I began to seek the Lord. But how is it that a person no sooner begins to seek the Lord, but Satan straight stir up all his instruments against him? When he was in agony of pain, he cried out, O Savior, give me patience. Thou hast given me patience, but give me more. Give me thy love, and pain is nothing. I have desired all this and a thousand times more, for there is no sin but I have been guilty of. A while after he said, O my mother, how is it? If a man does not his work, the masters in the world will not pay him his wages. But it is not so with God. He gives me good wages, and yet I am sure I have done nothing to gain them. Oh, it is a free gift. On Thursday morning, his mother asked him how he did. He said, I have had much struggling tonight, but my Savior is so loving to me, I do not mind it. It is no more than nothing to me. Then he said, I desire to be buried from the room, and that I desire Mr. Wesley would preach a sermon over me on those words of David, unless he thinks any other to be more fit. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. I asked him, How do you find yourself now? He said, In great pain, but full of love. I asked, But does not the love of God overcome pain? He answered, Yes, pain is nothing to me. I did sing praises to the Lord in the midst of my greatest pain, and I could not help it. I asked him if he was willing to die. He replied, Oh, yes, with all my heart. I said, But if life and death were set before you, what would you choose then? He answered, To die and to be with Christ. I long to be out of this wicked world. On Thursday night he slept much sweeter than he had done for some time before. In the morning he begged to see Mr. John Wesley. When Mr. Wesley came, and after some other questions asked him what he should pray for, he said that God would give him a clean heart and renew a right spirit within him. When prayer was ended, he seemed much enlivened and said, I thought I should have died today, but I must not be in haste. I am content to stay. I will carry the Lord's leisure. On Sunday he spoke exceeding little. On Monday his speech began to falter. On Tuesday it was gone, but he was fully in his senses, almost continually lifting up his eyes to heaven. On Wednesday his speech was restored. The next morning he spent in continual prayer, often repeating the Lord's Prayer and earnestly commending his soul into the hands of God. He then called for his little brother and sister to kiss them, and for his mother whom he desired to kiss him. Then between nine and ten he said, Now let me kiss you, which he did, and immediately fell asleep. He lived some months, about thirteen years. I'm reading from John Wesley's journal, Tuesday, May 25th. I set out early in the morning with John Taylor, since settled in London, and Wednesday the 26th, at eight or nine o'clock, reached Burstall, six miles beyond Wakefield. John Nelson had wrote to me some time before, but at that time I had little thought of seeing him. Hearing he was at home, I sent for him to our inn, whence he immediately carried me to his house, and gave me an account of the strange manner wherein he had been led on from the time of our parting at London. He had returned home in the year 1740. His relations and acquaintance soon began to inquire what he thought of this new life, and whether he believed there was any such thing as a man's knowing that his sins were forgiven. John told them point blank that this new faith, as they called it, was the old faith of the gospel, and that he himself was sure his sins were forgiven. 
This was soon noised abroad. More and more came to inquire concerning these strange things. Some put him upon the proof of the great truth which such inquiries naturally led him to mention. And thus he was brought unawares to quote, explain, compare, and enforce several parts of Scripture. This he did at first, sitting in his house until the company increased, so that the house could not contain them. Then he stood at the door, which he was commonly obliged to do, in the evening as soon as he came from work. God immediately set his seal to what was spoken, and several believed, and therefore declared that God was merciful also to their unrighteousness, and had forgiven all their sin. Those are some entries to John Wesley's journal. And here is the conclusion, a letter from Philip Doddridge to Mr. Wesley. Wednesday, July 2nd, 1746, I received the following letter from the amiable man who is now with God. Northampton, June 29, 1746. Reverend and dear sir, I am truly glad that the long letter I last sent you was agreeable to you. I bless God that my prejudices against the writers of the establishment were so early removed and conquered. And I greatly rejoice when I see in those whom upon other accounts I must highly esteem as the excellent of the earth, that their prejudices against their brethren of any denomination are likewise subsided, and that we are coming nearer to the harmony in which I hope we shall ever be one in Christ Jesus. I've always esteemed it to be the truest act of friendship, to use our mutual endeavors to render the characters of each other as blameless and as valuable as possible. And I have never felt a more affectionate sense of my obligations than when those worthy persons who have honored me with their affection and correspondence have freely told me what they thought amiss in my temper and conduct. This, therefore, dear sir, is an office which you might reasonably expect from me if I had for some time enjoyed an intimate knowledge of you. But it has always been a maxim with me not to believe any flying story to the prejudice of those whom I had apparent reason from what I knew of them to esteem. And consequently, as I should never make this a foundation, you must be contented to wait longer before you will be likely to receive that office of fraternal love which you ask from, Reverend and dear sir, your obliged and affectionate brother and servant, Philip Doddridge. For the information of my listeners, Philip Doddridge was from Northampton, England, and he wrote the book, The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul, in many hymns. And now we move forward to the journals of Mr. George Whitfield, 1737-1738. Saturday, December 31st. Began this morning to have public prayers on open deck, in which the officer and soldiers attended with decency and reverence. After prayer, I enlarge a little on those words of Paul, I am determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Gibraltar. Saturday, February 25th, 1738. About six this morning, went with friend H. to the church to pray with some devout soldiers who I heard used to meet there at that time. I found that their society had been subsisting about twelve years and that one Sergeant B., now amongst them, was the first beginner of it. At first they told me they used to meet in dens and mountains and caves and in the rock. But afterwards, upon their applying for leave to build a little place to retire in, Dr. C. and Governor S. gave them the free use of the church, where they constantly met three times in a day to pray, read, and sing psalms, and at any other season when they please. I conversed closely with several of them, 
And they made me quite ashamed of my little proficiency in the school of Christ. Many have joined with them for a time, but a servile fear of man, that bane of Christianity, made them draw back. However, some continue steadfast and immovable, and though despised by the world, are no doubt highly favored of God. Governor S. countenances them much, and has spoken of them often to me with respect. There is also another society of the Scotch Church. It has subsisted about a year, and is made up of many serious Christians, as I was informed. I sent them, as well as the other society, some proper books, had religious talk with several of them, and endeavored to unite both societies together. Tuesday, February 28th. Was asked by Dr. C., in the name of the Governor and Colonel G., to preach every prayer day whilst I stayed at Gibraltar, which I promised to do. Many of the inhabitants pressed me to stay with them, and were exceeding kind to those who were with me. Friday, March 3rd. I preached my sermon against swearing, and made a farewell application to the soldiers that were going over to Georgia out of that garrison. The governor had that morning reviewed them, and as I could not be in the same ship with them, I desired they might be ordered to come to church, that I might have an opportunity of telling them how to behave in that land which they were going over the sea to protect. The colonel and governor most readily consented. There was a most thronged audience, and God was pleased to set a seal to my sermon. Many officers and soldiers wept sorely, and a visible alteration was observed in the garrison for some days after. Oh, that their convictions may end in their conversion, and that they may bring forth the fruits of the Spirit. Monday, March 6, had near, if not more than a hundred at morning exposition, and it be in the last day of my sojourning at Gibraltar, many came to me weeping, telling me what God had done for their souls, desiring my prayers and promising me theirs in return. Who more unlikely to be wrought upon than soldiers, and yet God has made His power to be known. Many that were in gross darkness have been enlightened. Many that have fallen back have repented and turned unto the Lord again. Many that were ashamed to own Christ openly have waxen bold, and many that were saints have had their hearts filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Sunday, March 26. This day God, I trust, magnified His power in the conversion of a young gentleman on board, whom He has been pleased to visit with a fever. His convictions were strong, and, as far as I could find, a thorough renovation began in his heart. The Lord perfected. Exchanged some bad books that were on board, which I threw immediately into the sea, for some good ones. Blessed be God, all that I have found them with, as yet, have been already to surrender them up. April 3rd. Had some farther conversation with the young gentleman, whose conversion I mentioned before, and who I hope is really quickened from above. He told me he used to wonder to hear me talk that all our thoughts, words, and actions ought to be dedicated unto God, but now he perceives what I said to be true. April 8th. And now indeed we live more comfortably in the great cabin than can easily be imagined. We talk of little else but God and Christ. God has greatly blessed that excellent book, The Country Parson's Advice to His Parishioners. April 15th. I was called in a hurry to pray by one of the devout soldiers who came from Gibraltar and who was supposed to be expiring. I came and rejoiced in spirit for a soul seemed full of God. Instead of being afflicted at the approach of the King of Terrors, he welcomed it and said he was going to his dear Redeemer. Then he fell, as it were, into a trance and poured out his heart in repeating some very applicable verses out of the psalm, upon which we thought that he would have died, but lo, God brought him from the nethermost hell.
From that instant, the fever left him, and he recovered. Oh, what a difference is there between him that feareth God and him that feareth him not in their last hour. April 16th. This evening I was sent for by a sailor who has been the most remarkable swearer on board and whom I, in an especial manner, warned about two days ago, but he laughed at it. But tonight he sent for me, trembling and burning with a fever, told me what grievous sins he had been guilty of, and prayed most fervently for repentance. Two or three of the same stamp have been taken in the same manner. God grant that they may flee from the wrath to come. April 18th. Several squalls came upon us, which afforded me glorious manner for adoring that great good God, whom winds and storms obey. The sellers were in a great hurry and confusion, but not one single oath was heard all the while. It proved this, that sailors may pull their ropes without swearing, and that the words spoken to them have not altogether fallen to the ground. Blessed be God. Savannah, Georgia, Friday, June 2nd. This evening parted with kind Captain Whiting and my dear friend Delamote, who embarked for England about seven at night. The poor people lamented the loss of him and went to the waterside to take a last farewell. And good reason had they to do so, for he has been so very indefatigable in feeding the lambs of Christ with the sincere milk of the word, and many of them, blessed be God, have grown thereby. Surely I must labor most heartily since I come after such worthy predecessor. The good Mr. John Wesley has done in America under God is inexpressible. His name is very precious among the people, and he has laid such a foundation that I hope neither men nor devils will ever be able to shake. Tuesday, July the 12th. Returned from Ebenezer, the place where the Salzburgers are settled, and was wonderfully pleased with their order and industry. They are blessed with two such pious ministers as I have not often seen. They have no courts of judicature, but all little differences are immediately and implicitly decided by their ministers, whom they look upon and love as their fathers. They have likewise an orphan house in which are seventeen children and one widow, and I was much delighted to see the regularity wherewith it is managed. Oh, that God may stir up the hearts of His servants to contribute towards that and another which we hope to have erected at Savannah. Mr. Boltzius, one of their ministers, being with me on Saturday, I gave him some of my poor store for his orphans, and when I came to Ebenezer, he called them all before him, catechized and exhorted them to give God thanks for His good providence towards them, then prayed with them, and made them pray after Him, then sung a psalm, and afterwards the little lambs came, and shook me by the hand one by one, and so we parted, and I scarce was ever better pleased in my life. Surely whoever contributes to the relief of the Salzburgers will perform an acceptable sacrifice to our blessed Master. Monday, August 28th. This being the day of my departure for England, it was mostly spent in taking leave of my flock, who expressed their affection now more than ever, coming to me from the morning to the time I left them, with tears in their eyes, wishing me a prosperous voyage and safe return, and giving me things proper for my passage. Friday, December 8th. About noon I reached London, was received with much joy by my Christian friends, and joined with them in psalms and thanksgiving for my safe arrival. December 10th. Here seems to be a great pouring out of the Spirit, and many who were awakened by my preaching a year ago are now grown strong men in Christ by the ministrations of my dear friend and fellow laborers, John and Charles Wesley. Blessed be God. Saturday, December 30th. 
preached nine times this week and expounded near 18 times. Oh, blessed be God. I'm employed from morning till midnight. There's no end of people's coming and sending to me, and they seem more and more desirous, like newborn babes, to be fed with the sincere milk of the Word. What a great work has been wrought in the hearts of many within this twelve months. I'm reading from George Whitfield's journals, and for the information of my listeners, keep in mind that Whitfield was not even 25 at the time that he wrote this journal. 1739, London, January 3rd. Stayed at home on purpose to receive those who wanted to consult me. Blessed be God from seven in the morning till three in the afternoon. People came, some telling me what God had done for their souls, and others crying out, What shall we do to be saved? Many obliged to go out after this. I referred several till Thursday. How does God work by my own unworthy hands? His mercies melt me down. Oh, that I was thankful. Windsor, February 8th. I find much service might be done to religion on journeys if we had but courage to show ourselves Christians in all places. Others sing songs in public houses. Why should not we sing songs? And when we give the servants money, why may we not with that give them a little book and some good advice? I know by experience it is very beneficial. God grant this may be always my practice. Friday, February 16th begun this morning to settle a daily exposition and reading prayers to the prisoners in Newgate. I opened it by enlarging on the conversion of the jailer. Saturday, February 17th. About one in the afternoon, I went with my mother Seward and another friend to Kingswood and was most delightfully entertained by an old disciple of the Lord. My bowels yearned toward the poor colliers who, as far as I can find, are very numerous and yet are a sheep, having no shepherd. After dinner, therefore, I went upon a mount and spake to as many people as came unto me. They were upwards of two hundred. Blessed be God that I have now broke the ice. I believe I never was more acceptable to my master than I was standing to teach those hearers in the open fields. Amongst the letters I received from religious correspondence, one writes thus, quote, We had such a remarkable and sensible presence of God with us at Beach Lane this evening, as my eyes and ears were never witnesses of before. In the midst of Mr. J. Wesley's exposition, a woman present had such convictions of her lost estate by nature, and such a sense of sin that she could not forbear crying aloud, upon which Mr. Wesley, breaking off, went to her who earnestly desired him to pray for her, which he did in the presence of two or three hundred people, hardly one of whom, I think, could forbear tears, upon which she had comfort. Thursday, February 22. I went with some Christian friends to Bath, where I was much comforted by meeting with several that love our Lord Jesus in sincerity. More especially, I was edified by the pious conversation of the Reverend Mr. Griffith Jones, whom I have desired to see of a long season. His words came with power, and the account he gave me of the many obstructions he had met with in this ministry convinced me that I was but a young soldier just entering the field. Thursday, March 1st. Amongst my other letters, I received the following one from Mr. John Wesley, part of which is February 20th. My dear brother, our Lord's hand is not shortened amongst us. Yesterday I preached at St. Catherine's and at Isleton. I think I never was so much strengthened before. About 300 were present at Mr. S.'s. Thence I went to Mr. B.'s, where also we wanted room. Today I expound in the minorities at four, and Mrs. was at six, and to a large company of poor sinners in Gravel Lane, Bishopgate, at eight. The society at Mr. Grosh's does not meet till eight, so that I expound before I go to him near St. James Square.
On Wednesday at six, we have a noble company of women, who not adorned with gold or costly apparel, but with a meek and quiet spirit and good works. At the Savoy on Thursday evening, we have usually two or three hundred, most of them at least thoroughly awakened. Mr. A's parlor is more than filled on Friday, as is Mr. P's room twice over. On Saturday, seven at night, a middle-aged, well-dressed woman at Beach Lane, where I expound usually to five or six hundred before I go to Mr. E's society, was seized, as it appears to several about her, with little less than the agonies of death. We prayed that God, who had brought her to the birth, would give her strength to bring forth. Five days she was in bondage. On Thursday evening, our Lord got Himself to victory, and from that moment she has been full of love and joy, which He openly declared on Saturday last, so that thanksgiving were given to God by many on her account. End quote. The following paragraph was likewise in a letter I received from my dear brother Kinchin of Oxen. Quote, God has greatly blessed us at Oxford of late. We have reason to think that four within this fortnight have been born of God. The people crowd to the societies on Sunday nights, several gongs men amongst the rest. God has much assisted me. Last night we had a throng society and about forty gownsmen. Cardiff, March 8th. I was much refreshed with the sight of my dear brother Howell Harris, whom though I knew not in person, I have long since loved in the bowels of Jesus Christ, and have often felt my soul drawn out in prayer in his behalf. A burning and a shining light has he been in those parts, a barrier against profaneness and immorality, and an indefatigable promoter of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. About three or four years God has inclined him to go about doing good. He is now about twenty-five years of age. Twice he has applied, being every way qualified, for holy orders, but was refused under a false pretense that he was not of age, though he was then twenty-two years and six months. About a month ago, he offered himself again, but was put off. Upon this he was, and is still resolved to go on in his work, an indefatigable zeal as he shone in his master's service. For these three years he has discoursed almost twice every day for three or four hours together, not authoritatively as a minister, but as a private person exhorting his Christian brethren. He has been, I think, in seven counties, and has made it his business to go to wakes and so on, to turn people from such lying vanities. Many alehouse people, fiddlers, harpers, and so on, sadly cry out against him for spoiling their business. He has been threatened with public prosecutions, and had constables sent to apprehend him. But God has blessed him with inflexible courage. He is of a most Catholic spirit, loves all that love our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore he is styled by bigots a dissenter. He is contemned by all that are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. But God has greatly blessed his pious endeavors. Many own him as their spiritual father, and I believe would lay down their lives for his sake. He discourses generally in a field, but at other times in a house, from a wall, a table, or anything else. He has established near thirty societies in South Wales, and still his sphere of action is enlarged daily. After I had saluted him and given an exhortation to a great number who followed me to the inn, we spent the remainder of the evening in taking sweet counsel together and telling one another what God had done for our souls. We also took an account of the several societies and agreed on such measures as seemed most conducive to promote the common interests of our Lord. Blessed be God, there seems to be a noble spirit gone out into wells. There have been many burning and shining lights, both among the dissenting and church ministers, amongst whom Mr. Griffith Jones shines in particular. 
No less than 50 charity schools have been erected by his means without any settled visible fund, and fresh ones are setting up every day. People make nothing of coming 20 miles to hear a sermon, and great numbers there are who have not only been hearers, but doers also of the word, so that there is a most comfortable prospect of the spreading of the gospel in Wales. Bath, March 12th. Received news of the progress of the gospel in Yorkshire under the ministry of my dear brother, Ingham. August 15th. On board the ship bound to Philadelphia, began to put those of my family who I thought were prepared for it into bands. In all, we are eight men, four women, one boy, and two children, besides Mrs. Seward and myself. The conversion of one of the men was particularly remarkable, not long since he was a master of a ship which was lost near the Gulf of Florida. Providence was pleased to throw him and his crew upon a sandbank, where they continually expected the waters to overwhelm them. At the end of ten days they saw a ship and made a signal of distress. The ship made towards them. The captain, now with me, went out with his boat and begged for a passage for himself and men. It was granted him on condition he would leave some of his crew behind upon the sandbank, but he would not consent. At length the other commander agreed to take all. But as soon as ever my friend put off his boat to fetch them, the commander of the ship made sail and left them. All this seemed quite against, but in the end God showed it was intended for the good of my friend. After thirty days' continuance upon the sandbank, having fitted up the boat with some planks they had took out of a ship, which had been lost five months before, nine of them committed themselves to the providence of God. The others cared not to venture themselves in so small a boat. Having sailed about a hundred and forty leagues, they at length came to Tybee Island, ten miles off Savannah. An inhabitant being near that place espied them and brought them home with him, being then in Georgia, and informed of what had happened, I invited the captain to breakfast with me and reminded him of the goodness of God. He then seemed serious and coming very providentially in the same ship with me. When I returned to England, God was pleased to work more effectually upon his soul, and he has now returned with me to Georgia again. New Brunswick in America, November 20th. Preached about noon for near two hours in worthy Mr. Tennant's meeting house, to a large assembly gathered together from all parts, and amongst them, as Mr. Tennant told me, there was a great body of solid Christians, about three in the afternoon. I preached again, and at seven I baptized two children, and preached a third time with greater freedom than at either of the former opportunities. It is impossible to tell with what pleasure the children of God heard those truths confirmed by a minister of the Church of England, which for many years have been preached to them by their own pastor, Mr. Tennant's opposers' mouths were stopped, several were brought under strong convictions, and our Lord's dear disciples were ready to leap for joy. Among others that came to hear the word were several ministers whom the Lord has been pleased to honor in being an instrument of bringing many sons to glory. One was a Dutch minister named Freeling Hossen, pastor of a congregation about four miles off New Brunswick. He is a worthy soldier of Jesus Christ and was a beginner of the great work which I trust the Lord is carrying on in these parts. He has been strongly opposed by some persons, but God has always appeared for him in a surprising manner, and made him more than conqueror through his love. He has long since learned to fear him only, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Another was one Mr. Cross, minister of a congregation at Barking Bridge, about twenty miles from Brunswick. 
a most remarkable outpouring of the Spirit has been frequently seen in his assembly, for which he has been opposed much by natural men. He himself told me of many wonderful effects and sudden conversions that have been wrought by the Lord under his ministry. For some time eight or nine used to come to him together in deep distress of soul, and I think he said three hundred of his congregation, which is not very large, were effectually brought home to Christ. He indeed is one who I believe would rejoice to suffer for the Lord Jesus. Oh, that I may be like-minded. A third minister was one Mr. Campbell, who has been a preacher of the doctrines of grace for these four years, was a regular moral liver, and accounted a very good man, but within these few months, being convinced of sin, and that he knew nothing experimentally of Jesus Christ, though he had pretended to preach him so long, after many struggles with himself, he told the synod he was unconverted, and therefore dared not preach till he was. He has labored under great distress of soul. By some he is looked upon as melancholy and beside himself. But I had much discourse with him, and really believe these humiliations will prepare him for great and eminent services in the church of God. This case puts me in mind of Professor Frank, who being on Easter Day to preach on the nature of divine faith, and finding he had not that faith himself, was convicted by God of his unregenerate state, upon which he ran into the woods, was there deeply humbled, and at last became a most exalted instance of faith. November 21st. Mr. Daniel Rowland, another faithful minister of Jesus Christ, gave us a meeting. He had been a preacher about two years. He went about doing good and had many seals to his ministry. Much of the simplicity of Christ was discernible in his behavior. For the information of my listeners, Daniel Rowland preached many years without being converted himself, found out that he was unconverted, though he had preached vehemently upon the wrath of God and the torments of hell, and he was under conviction of sin for two years, at which time he preached more fearfully, and after he was saved, he just preached the sweet wooings of Jesus' love. November 22nd, sent out for Nashamini, 20 miles distant from Trent Town, where old Mr. Tennant lives, and keeps an academy, and where I was to preach today according to appointment. We found above 3,000 people gathered together in the meeting house yard, and Mr. William Tennant, an eminent servant of Jesus Christ, preaching to them because we had stayed beyond the time appointed. When I came up, he soon stopped and sung a psalm, and then I began to speak as the Lord gave me utterance. At first the people seemed unaffected, but in the midst of my discourse the power of the Lord Jesus came upon me, and I felt such a struggling within myself for the people as I scarce ever felt before. The hearers began to be melted down immediately, and we had reason to hope the Lord intended good for many. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, 
M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.